Hello and welcome to this week's uh, Market Thinkers discussion. This week we're talking private markets and we have my business partner, Drew Meredith. Hi, Drew. Hi, and, Jamie. Uh, <laughs> how are you going? And Cameron Brown, John. Uh, welcome, Cameron. Hi, guys. Thank you for having uh, me. First, a little, about, a little bit about Waddle Partners. Waddle Partners, Drew and myself's firm, uh, independent fee-for-service wealth managers based in Melbourne. Uh, we're fee-for-service and independent and have been since uh, our group was founded in 1973 by Austin Donnelly, that we think was the first fee-for-service independent wealth firm in Australia. Uh, every week we've been bringing these Market Thinker series to you, which we try to introduce a, a thinker or a fund manager that we use and, and we have connections with. Uh, essentially, uh, Drew and I talk to a lot of people every day and what we're trying to do is demystify a line that you might have in your portfolio that says Federation. So today we've got Cameron. Uh, he's the founder and CEO of Federation Asset Management. Uh, a specialised private equity, property and renewable group out of Sydney. Um, before Cameron started this group uh, a couple of years ago, he spent many years in investment banking, um, managing the balance sheet uh, or the balance sheet's proprietary investments for, say, Macquarie Bank for a long period of time. We, we like what Cameron's done because he hasn't just uh, left a large group and started another Australian share manager. He's started a, a private equity fund that is available to retail investors like yourselves and like us. Um, so it's quite, entrepreneur, quite entrepreneurial. Um, let, let's just talk about how today's session will go. Drew will introduce the strategy and why we have it in our core portfolio. Then I'll ask Cameron 10 quick fire questions about uh, markets and who he is and what he does. Um, and then we'll get into Q and A. And as per usual, if you have any questions at all, please feel free to, to type the questions to us and we'll try to get to them. No question is too stupid. No question is too in depth. Well, no, too in depth for Cameron, don't direct them my way. Um, so maybe over to you, Drew. Can you just talk about why Federation is a part of our core portfolio? Yeah, of course. I think what attracted us is what Jamie said. It's a very unique strategy. It's combining three traditionally very difficult to access asset classes. So private equity, direct property, renewable energy. Uh, they've diff been difficult to access for most investors, not not for big institutions. And we've kind of found as one of the first of its kind that's broadly available, so available to, to most people in Australia. Uh, it also has a unique ESG focus, which I'm sure covering on to or following on from last week with Nanook, I'm sure Cameron will explain that in a bit more detail. The driver for us is uh, we look at groups like the Future Fund or Australian Super, and they hold as much as 30 to 50% of their portfolio in these alternative or, or private assets. There's a few reasons they do that. Whilst by no means is that sort of allocation appropriate for everyone, um, the allocation in most portfolios in Australia is zero compared to 30 or 40. So the biggest reasons being accessibility, federations kind of going a long way to change that. Uh, and there's probably three main reasons. We like the private market, so private equity, property, uh, and renewable energy sectors. One naturally there's a potential for higher returns two is they tend to have less volatility like in march and april uh and and finally it's probably a you probably read it a lot something like 98 percent of all companies in the world and all property in the world isn't available on listed exchanges that's all 
in private markets. So there's just more opportunities for investors and a whole whole market outside. So the like difference the between private investments and public investments, Drew, can you just explain that for the listeners? Yeah, just not not traded on a on a secondary exchange like the ASX or the S and P or the Nasdaq or the New York Stock Exchange. So, like a commercial property around the corner, an office block, and maybe private companies as well, right? Yeah, private companies, private property, um, all those sort of, and the you you can imagine how much bigger that asset class is than a few companies that you can buy. The thirteen hundred companies on the ASX. Uh, I think on for that introduction, I'd like to welcome Cameron. I think you're going to shoot those 10 uh, questions at him, Jamie. Good luck, Cameron. Thanks. I'm a bit nervous about that. <laughs> All right. Uh, I think you've done this before, Cameron. Uh, 10 questions, quick fire, one word answers if you can. If, uh, if not, short sentences. So here we go. Number one, best investment for Armageddon. Gold, crypto, cash or government bonds? Cash is king. Cash is king. Preferred meal in 2020. Fish, chicken, beef or beyond meat? Mm. It's important not to get bored, but if I had to pick one, I'd probably go for chicken. Chicken. Beyond uh, Pineapple on pizza? That would be a no. No. What's the best stock you've personally bought? I'm going to say one of the current Federation ones. I'm happy with how Sandal's performing at the moment. Yeah, good work. What is the personal investment decision you most regret? It's probably situations where I've said no to. Um, so early doors, I mean, after Pay's journey, I said no to that on the basis of relative valuation and risk um, when <laughs> I was at Macquarie, and I'd say I probably got that wrong. <laughs> Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, or TikTok? I'm not a huge user of those platforms. Um, I am on Instagram um, for photos of kids and whatnot. Um, and I'm also on LinkedIn. I think you have four boys, don't you, Cameron? Got four children. I've got a boy, a four girl, children. a boy, a girl. Yeah, really? That'd be on TikTok, I assume? Yeah, a couple of them might be, unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you can only hold one stock for the next 10 years. Let's say you retired today and you, there's just one stock you can hold with all the capital that you've accumulated. What would it be? I don't think it would be an Australian one. Um, and so sort of thematically, are you thinking about, you know, is it an aging population thematic that you're looking for? Is it an urbanization? Is it a computer age kind of thing? Um, if you were to hold me to it, um, the simple answer would probably be Amazon. It probably plays to um, some of those thematics. Yep. Um, and, um, but, you know, I guess its own challenge is it in some ways is becoming as big as the market in many instances as well. Yeah, true. Best region to invest in today, US, Asia, Europe, or Australia? Depends what you're looking for. Um, there'll be pockets of value in each. Um, yep. I'd say the United States on balance tends to have the biggest and best companies for a reason. The, we, we could do a whole whole session about that, couldn't we? And the entrepreneurial spirit of the US has been hard to beat in the last hundred years. Mm. The one red flag for any investment. I think opacity um, is to be feared. Um, there is a real premium in transparency. So people that try and hide what the answer is, um, either through poor disclosure or whatnot, um, starts to highlight some red flags to us. The gym, running, rowing, or none of the above? I do everything I can to be as fit as you guys. <laughs> Not as fit as me. <laughs> Thanks, Cameron. Well done. Over to you, Drew. 
I thought maybe just a quick intro, Cameron, on your, your career and we, we say why you put your money where your mouth is or why you started Federation. You're the, you're the founder and CEO um, and yeah, put why you decided to put skin in the game. Well, thank you. Yeah, I'm 44 years old this week. Um, Federation Happy turned, birthday. Thank you. Federation turned two this month. So in my early 40s, I guess I made the decision to, to pop across and um and leave the warm embrace of the investment banking um sort of employers where i was for um for more than two decades um firstly as an investment banker as you as you mentioned but for the latter two-thirds of my career um running the investment teams for them um the thing that i enjoyed in both instances the most in my career whether it was an advisor or an investor was working with people that had built businesses so people that had you know gone out and and done something um, and, and led something and, and did something new. And I, and I guess at an instance, you know, took, took, took a risk to build a thing. Um, I really enjoyed working with those people. I, I really felt like I learned a lot from them as well and probably all, always had it in me to have a go at doing it at the right time in my career. And doing private equity is a complex thing. There's, you need to probably have some, some life lessons um, in you before you can do it well. And I guess pragmatically as well, no one's gonna give a 30 year old money to do something as complex as what we do, but maybe they will um, when you're 40-ish and you've done it for long enough and learnt enough and made enough um, um, successes and, and learn enough from your mistakes as well. Kind of why I tried to grow a beard to look a, <laughs> a little bit older as well. <laughs> uh, Excellent. Great introduction. I thought um, we might go start at the, the basics for this one. So looking at the, the key asset classes, private equity, renewables uh, and property, maybe we start on private equity. Um, why you think it warrants a position in, in portfolios and how it's different to holding an ASX stock um, and maybe what you expect returns will be over the next five to 10 years. Yeah. So we, um, we, don't do private equity for private equity's sake, um, but we do um, at Federation invest in, or where we see the best opportunity set within um, investing in companies right now is, is growth equity, giving companies capital to grow. And we're finding management teams in sectors that we like with companies that we think will win within those sectors. Um, we're giving them the capital to grow their business plan. So well-established so, so, companies already operating, not not venture capital or, or startup. No, no, not not venture capital, and and also not at the big end of the scale. So the the the, the bulge bracket KKR Pacific Equity Partner end of the scale, um, where these companies are just as big as listed companies, and and just are not listed for 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 one reason or another. Yeah. Um, so, so we see this growth equity opportunity set as being. Well, there's a number of situations. There's far more situations than the current supply of capital to prosecute the opportunity set there. And we think where that, that's sort of, a, I guess, a supply demand imbalance from the scale of opportunities relative to the capital that can provide into them, we think we can find some pretty good risk return equations. So better levels of return for a given level of risk or, um, you know, lower levels of risk for a given level of return. And um, I guess, the next soundbite I would I would say is that we then only really play within that growth equity dynamic in sectors that we have form in and experience and, and years of working in. So um, our team here, for example, knows nothing about 
consumer discretionary businesses. We don't know anything about retailers or food or um, consumer products companies. And so we spend no time on that bit, but we do spend lots of time on healthcare and financial institutions and parts of the technology spectrum and, and some other sectors in areas where the team has you know, been working together now for a decade and, and probably had careers you know, working in those sectors beforehand. And so we feel that balancing those two things within the growth equity environment um, gives a pretty fertile fact set to try and to try and protect our investors' capital and make money from there. You think COVID's kind of improved the opportunity set there? Has it, has it pulled money out of the sector? Um, our pipeline, um, our pipeline, it's fair to say, is as good as it's ever been, probably better. Um, yeah. We are being cautious. Uh, I guess people would want us to be cautious as we sort of sift through those things and think about how it is that we want to be um, prosecuting the things in front of us. Pick a money, money lender uh, as an example, and we, we do know uh, about you know financial institutions. And um, I guess it's good to, within COVID, lots of people are wanting to borrow money. Well, that's all good. One of the challenges is getting repaid when you're a money lender. And, and so, um, you know, lots of thought is being put into making sure that these businesses have the right um, credit checking approach and credit checking policies and um, almost fiscal responsibilities um, that you'd be expecting of them before we push the button on, on thinking about investment seriously. And through this, um, through Federation, do you do it only as buying shares in the company or you, do you do loans or, or converting loans as well? Yeah, the team, the team here, um, it, it, it should be noted, um, has experience working across the capital structure. So um, in prior lives, this team did the first and most distressed debt, for example, in some of the big situations in Australia, Briz Connections, Allco, Babcock and Brown, Alinta, Centro, uh, and some other things. And we were either the first or most or both of the largest um, traders and owners of the distressed debt in those situations and made very good money uh, in the instance of Briz Connections. I think the, the team invested near on half a billion dollars and made somewhere in the range of 17% IRR in first lien debt, buying the tunnel, if you like, through the debt envelope and then selling it to Transurban. Um, so this team is not uncomfortable with being, you know, debt or mezzanine or you understand both or, parts or, of the, the or, business or equity and, and that's right and so even in our current portfolio we do have one instance where we aren't in fact um, ordinary equity we've put a convertible note in a company came to us called george health it's a healthcare company uh, came to us seeking growth capital um, we did due diligence on the business um, and we we liked it to a level and we agreed to give them the money that they were wanting which was $15 million to prosecute some of their global opportunities. Um, but we could not get comfortable um, on valuation uh, on their asking price. Um, and so we negotiated to put our money in ahead of ordinary equity of convertible note structure. And we've got four years to convert into ordinary equity and we've agreed the price of that conversion. Um, and so we feel that we've essentially given our investors equity upside like they're paying us to seek, but we've protected their entry um, so that we can get into the company and suck it and see for a while. Um, and we feel that those sorts of credits skills are, um, I guess, we've benefited from that experience investing across the capital structure in prior lives. Yep. Just a bit about deal flow, Cameron. Um, there seems to be a, a few new funds coming to us that are dressed up as pre-IPO funds. Um, you know, dressed up is probably not the right word, but you know, essentially they're selling to us as uh, two years out 
or 18 months out until listing. And there seems to be more and more capital going towards that. Do you have more competitors for the deals that you're looking at at the moment? Or is it a competitive space and do you get enough deals? Or is it, um, do, you have, do you have relationships and you know, some way a funnel that, that gets you access to these things? Um, firstly, I'll contextualise the scale of the opportunity set, and then I'll then I'll answer that question. So, Federation has a three-stage investment committee uh, process. We use different words for these stages, but essentially, our three stages are: Do we spend real time on a investment analysis? Do we spend money due diligencing it? So, do we appoint advisors and lawyers and whatnot to to look under the hood? Uh, and then do we do it? They would be our three gates. In, in our first 12 months of operation, we're now through two years, but the one I always remember is the first 12 months of data. Um, yeah. The first um, IC gate, we had 130 companies come through uh, our first IC. Um, and, and I would say anecdotally, the team probably brings one in three or one in four of the things that they're finding to that first IC. So we would have found several hundred situations in our first 12 months. 130 came to IC, someone wrote a paper, spent a couple of weeks work doing comps and figuring out cash flow forecasts and what's the SWOT analysis on the investment and where are the risks and how would we structure such a thing and so on and so forth. Of those 130, 22 made it through the second IC. So we appoint advisors 22 times and we invested six times. So what I'm sort of explaining there is we're seeing a lot of things and we're really disciplined in how we're behaving. Yep. Out, of, out of those several hundred things that we started with, uh, yep, it's definitely true that we would not have been exclusive on all of them, but it's certainly true that we're exclusive in many of them. And this is the, the reason for that is that we have I guess, industry experts in each of the areas that we play. And these people have been doing this thing for now a long time. So people in their industry know them, would bring things to them, sometimes not exclusively. They would be one of the people they would bring things to. Um, but we've got pretty well now credentialed and played out um, sourcing pathways and origination pathways and figuring out how we can be relevant to people and, and they find I guess they find us as a good return on time um, because we'll either give them a yes or a no quite quickly um, and, and and so the competitive dynamic has not been uh, too much of a challenge for us within that within that funnel yep. um, sort of sort of dynamic now having said that yeah we've also noticed there's been some guys that have been popping up in in pre-ipo equity land and that's probably quite an intelligent area to play because for the longest time there was only a couple of funds that um, kind of had a lock on that opportunity mm. set um, and and it does seem that there is um, there does seem that there is you know the odd good idea that can be coming through those pathways and it's sort of the certain thing that federation would would also hold ourselves out to be able to price and figure out and, and play a role in we haven't done it yet i i note a couple of years in so we'll be pretty patient before uh, we do such things but but conceptually we could be doing those things and and would certainly welcome the opportunity to do it in concert with the regals and the and the others of the world that that do such a thing and when you buy a private uh private position you don't are you thinking about how you exit it and and you'll find you don't have to exit it publicly do you? It could be a trade sale, or you could just sell your holding onto the 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 next owner of that. Yes, we. So always, you've got to think about how you're going to get out before you get in. Yep. Um, and 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 so, yep, it's one of the core things that we think hard about uh, as we as we work through um, our our analysis on whether an investment is good, bad, or indifferent. Mm. Um, 
the uh, the answer to your, your question around how do we get out? Yes, we can IPO. And to the question on screen, uh, an IPO is an initial public offering. It's when a um, company is sold to the stock market, as opposed to another company or another financial buyer like us. Um, or we could. Um, and do you hold your shares in that, Cameron? So if you if you if you hold a position in a stock and it lists on the ASX, do you continue to hold on a public market? So this private equity fund has public market shares. That... We 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 can. Um, we yep. we in fact bought WinLab when it was a listed company, and then ultimately decided to take it private and almost do the reverse yep. of taking a listed company private as opposed to yep. taking a private company to a listing like an IPO. Yep. Um, so, so we have that a flex we have that flexibility under our mandate. Um, and we do have the flexibility to hold through a listing date and um, to buy more and sell some and, 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 and so on and so forth. And we think about all of those things um, continually um, as, as we um, work through um, life as an asset manager. It's not the traditional, or not the traditional, but the way private equity is sometimes viewed in the media, which is, you know, buy a company, take it private, sell everything off and relist it at a higher valuation. Very different. You're trying to help companies grow, not not shrink them in. Yeah, I, I, I would say um, there are some private equity firms that would be better than us at um, going in and identifying situations where they'll say management's got it wrong, let's slash cuffs, let's fire this person and bring this other person in. That's not the game that we play. We're, we're much more comfortable partnering with management and if you like, almost not just underwriting the company, but underwriting management and their business plan. And yeah. when we're investing in, through that lens, we then for don't need to be the control investor. We could be a substantial minority investor and, and we'll be looking for almost the minority investor protections in that instance. It's not always the case that we'll be a minority yeah. investor, but when we are, we'll look for investor protections, negative controls where essentially we're saying, look, we're backing this management team. We're backing your business plan. You can't change the management team or the business plan without our approval, um, and 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 those sorts of those sorts of levers that we play, as opposed to um, some private equity firms, which have had success, by the way, um, in some instances of going in and changing the way the things are happening and thinking they can do it better. Should we pivot sideways, Jamie, into property? Yeah, I think we mentioned WinLab, so it'd be good to go to to, to real assets and and renewables. I think. Yep. So yeah. So the this the um, second of the three prongs is investments in renewable energy assets. You've you've got this um, ESG that we discussed last week. Focus so sustainable business models, uh, and I think you you teamed up with Twiggy Forest, was it, to buy uh, WinLab and take that private? What was the what was the idea? What what's the company do? Well, and what was the idea uh, behind that? Yeah, okay, thanks. So WinLab makes wind farms. It's a developer of wind farms. It's the former CSIRO um, wind science division. Um, so they're good at figuring out where the wind blows and then um, building wind farms um, where, where that happens and connecting it to the electricity grid. Um, it was a listed company and, and we thought the listed company, the listed market had got the valuation of the company wrong. The listed market was only really pricing the existing assets and operations of WindLab and was ignoring the latent value in its development book. And developers are always about the value of their development book, so the things to come in the future. Um, and the development book in WindLab's instance is massive. It's seven times the size of Infogen's. It's 7.7 .7 gigawatts. If you built all those wind farms, there's $20 billion worth of wind farms. Um, so 
we thought essentially if we're buying it for the market price, we're inheriting this development book as a series of free options. There's about 50 of them that, that add up to that um, $20 billion of built value worth that we've bought for nothing. And we reckon we've paid the right price for some of them. It's definitely clear that some of those 50 free options are worthless, but, but um, some of them are, are, are worth something. And, and so our plan is to build out, say, half a billion dollars worth of these things per annum into the foreseeable future. And if we can do that, we'll turn the developer into an electricity producer with a really strong development book and make it look a bit more like an infogen or a tilt. And then our plan is to relist it. And so we're bringing our institutional partners with lower costs of capital to come and build out these wind farms and therefore WindLab gets some accretive value out of that. And hopefully the value of WindLab goes up and when we relist that everyone will be happy. That's our plan. And you're looking for so, more. So what are these? Sorry, what do these options look like? Are they rights or permits or government or, or, or the right to lease certain pieces of land or what does an option look like in that space? Yeah, I'm, and I'm and I'm using um, I'm using the the word option um, as yep. opposed to the financial market derivative of you know right not obligation to buy a certain thing at a certain price um, by a certain time. Um, it, it usually means they own um, leasehold interests over a farm with cows on it um, and have um, a process that they're part the way through with you know, DA approvals or um, yep. grid, grid connectivity approvals or environmental approvals or community approvals or some such thing, some plan to get the thing from farms on with cows on it to farms with cows and wind turbines on them. Um, and um, what they need is, I guess, some help and certainly some capital to, to be doing that gymnastics to, 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 to get it down that path. Do you intend to make right. multiple investments in the sector or more backing this one to keep expanding? Um, well, well, so the head of our renewable energy business, um, firstly, um, is a guy called Stephen Panitza. Stephen's 56. Uh, he and I worked together at Macquarie. He ran Macquarie's principal team in Asia. He was based in Asia for 15 years. Uh, Stephen um, in renewable energy is one of those well-known people that I was talking about earlier with you know, better down pathways of how to originate things. Um, I guess most notably because in between his time at Macquarie and Federation, um, he was the chief investment risk officer of the Clean Energy Finance Corporation. That's Australia's Green Bank. Um, and so through that role, he's, he's financed billions of dollars worth of power stations in the, in the couple of years leading up to joining Federation. Everyone in the sector knows him. He knows every project. We feel like we see everything, um, not, not, not always exclusively. So in the instance of the John Lang portfolio that's currently for sale, Stephen and his team are participating in that. We may or we may not win it. We certainly don't have it exclusively. Macquarie have asked us and their several other hundred favorite clients um, to, to participate in, in the buying of that. Um, and then in some instances, we, we, we also um, are, are exclusive and, and, and looking to do things exclusively. So um, no, it's, it's good to have that series of optionality over building out WinLab's development book, but we would like to blend that with some existing power stations. Take for example, John Lang's portfolio, some solar farms, some rooftop solar things, some grid stuff, some maybe some smart meter things, maybe some battery um, sort of thing. So we're thinking about all of these things in the broader church of sustainable infrastructure, um, but that development equity piece within WinLab is an important part of the puzzle, not all of the puzzle. And what's the sort of target return you're looking at in the renewable energy sector? 
Yeah, uh, well, just you, broadly, it, it does vary. Um, so for um, steady state, long-term contracted cash flows, you can get um, very low, um, say mid to um, single digit returns in that because it looks a bit like a bond. Like if yeah. you've got mm -hmm. a long-term contract to AGL as the off-taker of the power for 20 years, it's like a AGL credit risk. And so you price it at something, something accordingly. Um, if it's a farm with cows on it, that you've got to do all this um, work, it's, it's definitely pointy end private equity returns. And so it's many and varied along that sort of spectrum. If it helps to sort of blend the puzzle, one of the things that Stephen's doing um, is attracting institutional capital to bring the money in to develop these projects. Um, and at the project level, a blended return there is about a 12% pre-tax cost of equity. And so that's a lower rate of return than what we're targeting from, say, your client base in at the, I guess, the Federation um, Alternative Investors Investments Master Trust level. Um, we would be expecting a return that exceeds that at that level. Yeah, so your equity is more like 15 and your, and your debt is more like uh, 6 to 8% or so, even lower, depending on, yeah. Ideally lower. Yep. Yeah, four, with bond rates could be four, <laughs> 3 to 5%. Um, <laughs> maybe we pivot towards the, the so, property port. Jamie, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, one of the things that really interests us initially when we started looking at your fund, Cameron, was... Uh, the exposure and a real, we think it's a new asset class, which is around social housing and um, the NDIS scheme and what is happening in terms of governments supporting the disabled um, community within Australia. And, you know, one of the things that is rare is for a fund to a fund to have exposure to this new asset class. So can you just explain what social housing is in your mind and what is happening in that market and why it, why, why it is interesting as an yep. asset class? Maybe how it's different. There's always been different subsidies for different sectors of, of housing build as well. So maybe how it's different to the, the past ones. Okay, I'll have a go at that. So Federation um, <laughs> is operating two real estate investment trusts. One of them is a childcare REIT. Um, and one of them is a, is a social housing rate. In the instance of the social housing rate, it's called Synergis. Uh, and Synergis um, builds and buys homes for disabled people. The rent is indirectly paid for um, through the Commonwealth Government's National Disability Insurance Scheme. Um, and the NDIS is a $22 billion per annum budget. It's only kind of getting half drawn on right now. So there's no risk in the near term of um, that money being fully deployed or utilized. And within that 22 billion, um, $700 million per annum has been set aside to be paying the rent for schemes such as Synergis. And that is the surface of that is only just being scratched right now. So there's this flurry of people like us that are running around to try and build these things because the government is incentivizing the private sector to be solving a social need. Um, and, and, and what does that, what does that mean? There is thousands of people um, in Australia living with a disability um, in areas of unmet need. The easiest case study to give is disabled young people that live in nursing homes because there is nowhere else really to go for that standard of care that they need, but plainly um, they're not being cared for in the way that they are. If they're a young person in with you know, people that might be three generations older than in, 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 in nursing homes. 
So there's the, the government has identified this problem and said, well, why don't we get people like Federation to invest in the solution to this problem? Um, the, 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 as on the investor side, the, the, the key thing is to make sure you're making good risk adjusted returns when we're not doing it just to solve the social problem. Maslow's hierarchy of needs for this for-profit investor um, almost runs, don't lose people's money, then figure out how to make a return on that money. And if you're doing good by the world as you're going along the, the way, then you're potentially probably giving yourself the better chance of doing that because if you were doing wrong by the world, maybe the government changes the rules or someone figures it out or you know, does something to you. So um, that's why we're I guess that's the way we're thinking. So in terms of de-risking such a situation, plainly it's important to make sure that we've mitigated regulatory risk, the government not changing rules on you. And we think that we've got some very cogent answers structurally for how we've negated that problem. Um, and then making sure you've got occupants because you don't get paid for availability. If you build a home for disabled people, but no disabled people live in it, um, then you're not gonna get any rent. Um, so you need to have good relationships with the care providers and the home builders that service this industry. And we sort of thought coming out of Macquarie, well, um, maybe we're not the best placed party to be um, bedding down those long-term entrenched relationships. So Stephen's got long-term entrenched relationships in renewable energy. What do we have in um, the field of building and buying homes for disabled people? Not as strong. So we've teamed up with Social Ventures Australia, who's got two decades of form in doing exactly this sort of thing. And we've joint ventured the fund manager. We've mm. essentially packaged it up and took it to them and agreed to do everything 50-50, arm in arm, just do everything and get together and, and split it down the middle. And we're really pleased with how that's going. We're really proud of how those guys operate. Um, and we're really proud of what it is that we're building together with them. And, and hopefully um, we're doing the right thing by the world too. What does the accommodation look like, uh, Cameron? Does it look like an aged care facility or is it more like housing with, uh, you know, with, with access points and bigger bathrooms and lift points or is it, is, is it a combination of both? Yeah, it's a mix of stock. Um, so um, in one instance, we're building uh, five villas in, uh, in a line at, at DY in Sydney. In one instance, we're building two three-bedroom homes adjacent to each other um, in the outskirts of Melbourne. Um, one instance, we're building and buying some off-the-plan salt-and-peppered apartments in a housing development in Adelaide. There's all of these things all over the country that we're doing, um, and there's got different types of stock. The commonality is we're working with specialist disability accommodation providers that we know and like, and we've vetted their credentials and their balance sheet, and we know they're not going to go bankrupt and that they're good people and do all the right thing by the world. And that we're working with the care groups that look after these people. So a rumor is an instance that everyone's aware of or the former house with no steps. Um, they're one of the, the parties that we've vetted and, and work with and almost they come to us and they say, look, we've got these, these 10 occupants in this, in this care home. They're looking for this standard of accommodation. Can we work in almost a triumvirate relationship with you and this home builder that, that knows how to build these things to produce this product that these people um, need and, and will do in, in say this land lot. Um, and if you like, we're almost, we're the money for it. Yeah. The key is um, that you're, you're owning the properties, right? You're same as childcare. You own the property. You're not, you're outsourcing the development risk and the, 
and and the operations and maintenance and the care of the and the care of the occupants. So yes, in the yeah. childcare instance, we're not teaching the kids how to count and eat macaroni. We're just the <laughs> landlord. Um, <laughs> yeah, there'd be comparisons to to ABC Learning, but the, that aggressive approach of of trying to take on multiple businesses and operate the businesses versus just owning the property and leasing it to great quality childcare mm -hmm. providers. Is, we, is just wanna, we just want to find a guy that will pay the bills, pay the rent. Um, and so yeah. um, making sure that we've got a quality tenant that's doing the right thing by their customers. Otherwise, I guess we're taking second derivative risk on, um, on, on those sorts of childcare factors. But yes, in both instances, we're just the landlord. We had a bit of a question about how the fund allocates between the three sectors. Is that uh, split evenly or is that based on the deals that come through? Is there a long-term target? It's intentionally not split in any way, um, but um, the best guidance we can give is that over the life of a cycle, we guess that we'll be about a third, a third, third allocated into renewable energy, into social um, real estate and into growth private equity. Yeah. Um, if the, the reason we don't want to lock ourselves into one of those things is what happens if the government changes the rules, say renewable energy, that's climate change isn't a thing. Let's build yeah. gas fired power stations. Um, then, um, and they, and they make it too hard, um, to, to, to make money on a de-risk basis out of renewable energy, then we shouldn't feel the pressure to do that. And we'll make sure that our investors capital is protected and invested in the places that do make sense at any given time. Um, but what we've found now doing this same thing um, that we've been doing as a team since 2011, so Federation's quite new, but we have been operating as a team since 2011. We found that through a cycle, it'll probably blend out to be about a third, a third, a third. And at the moment, it's about that, isn't it? Or a little bit uh, higher in, in property? I'd say we probably haven't hit a third in um, how we've allocated to um, renewable energy, I'd say we're probably um, overweight growth private equity um, relative to other spaces at the moment. Yeah, and they're performing well. It could be a good um, segue into, it sounds like your favorite company, uh, Sendal. If you could prov provide a bit of a summary, why, why you, uh, how you found it, why you invested, how it's growing. And there was a deal with eBay, I think, um, even what it, yeah, what it does. And I think it fits that ESG theme as well. Yeah, okay. So Sendal, yeah, Sendal's an e-commerce logistics business. So what does that mean? It, it, it moves things from A to B without its own trucks and without its own warehouses. So, so I guess the first way I've learned to explain this company is, um, is by way of analogy. Vodafone is a virtual mobile network operator in Australia different business model in other countries, but in Australia, that's what it does. So it sells the customer services of mobile telephony, but it doesn't own its own towers to provide that service. It piggybacks off Optus's towers. So Sendal, when it's moving a thing from A to B, a package, a letter, a parcel, box of wine, um, it's, not, it's not got its own trucks. It's not got its own warehouses. It finds the marginal capacity from the logistics network in real time at its marginal cost using computers with no human interaction. So digitally, almost said that correctly, and, and, and seamlessly, <laughs> it, it finds the fastest and cheapest solution for the customer. And it's got a um, customer friendly front end. Um, for example, it comes and picks things up from you as opposed to going and lining up at Australia Post to send the same things. And it does it cheaper and as fast, if not faster than them. As a result, customers are loving it. And it's and particularly shops that say maybe send a thousand parcels a month. Online yep. shops, in, in, including those guys, 
Um, it's it's growing. Businesses. Yeah, it's targeting the SME sector more often than not. So you you or I could be sending a box of wine to from Sydney to or Melbourne to Perth or something. Um, but you know, really, the, their core customer that they're really targeting is the SME um, marketplace, and they're doing well. So we invested in December of 2018. Every month since we've invested, uh, revenues have grown by more than 50% on prior comparable period. So the month in the prior year, um, and many instances it's grown by more than 100%. Last month it was up by 240%. So it's growing like a weed. Um, and they came to us in late <laughs> 2018 and they said, look, we've been asked by a couple of our customers to move from just operating in Australia to service them overseas and they would like us to start in the United States. Um, can you give us the money to do that? And we did and we became their second largest shareholder. So we're taking, I guess, exposure across all of their business, but we've given them that, the funds to, to, to prosecute the North American opportunity. The CEO relocated to Seattle. There's a team up there now doing great things. Um, as a soundbite, those customers, those two customers were eBay and Shopify. And, and those guys um, underwrote minimum volume commitments, um, which made it a financially very easy decision to say yes to. Um, and uh, it's one of the key reasons why this thing's really growing. So we're really proud of how um, Sandal's going. And, and hopefully, um, as this thing becomes bigger and bigger, more and more people will hear about it. It must be, its revenues still aren't $100 million per annum, but I guess they'll be approaching that soon. SME stands for, um, I guess, a small to medium enterprise. So smaller companies, shops that maybe send a thousand parcels a month to the question on the screen. Um, yep. And, um, you know, hopefully in the future, it will, um, it will be one of those success stories that um, everyday Australians are proud of. And how do so you, um, oh, sorry. sorry, Drew. I'll go, I'll go. What, what's the uniqueness of Sendal? Do they have an algorithm or do they have all the relationships lined up or what makes them successful where, you know, the last 10 or 15 years, everyone's talked about the last mile and there's a, a whole heap of ASX listed companies that have promised and failed to deliver that. It seems like Sendal has been able to execute it. So is it, is it something unique? that founders had, or is it just the ability to build a business and execute from end to end? Yeah, I think the end to end is the thing that um, is certainly the thing that um, if I'm, if I'm sending a bottle of wine from you know, Melbourne to Perth, I'd be wanting to make sure that the person's got carriage of it the whole way, um, as opposed to, you know, compartmentalizing the supply chains like maybe others have. Yeah, it's a good question. I haven't really thought why has Sendall got a thing that um, people haven't been able to do before? What has Sendall done that's different to others? Um, I think it probably does come down to um, the ability to execute and do a thing that you said you can do. Um, they've got, um, they've now got um, tried and tested relationships with, with certainly Australia's logistics network, um, mm. pretty much everyone other than um, Australia Post. Um, but this is, maybe understating it because they haven't had any peril in trying to replicate their business model in moving to the United States. They just seem to be unique. Right. No one really mm -hmm. does what it is that they do. So they've stumbled upon a, um, a thing that the world didn't realize they needed, but um, seems to be paying for. How do you Fantastic. value and something like that within, within the portfolio? So it's an unlisted company. It's growing incredibly quickly. Do you compare it to a company like 
eBay, not eBay, but it's not eBay is not Korea. Do you have comparisons? Is that how you value it for the fund? Because you have to obviously do performance reports. Yeah. So, so for one of these, I guess for one of these situations, when you're entering it, it's 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 tough. Like if it's different, what do you compare it to? You, you certainly try and you you triangulate um, various different business models, digital marketplaces, you know, SaaS companies. Um, and you sort of think about how they're valued at the sort of stages of their growth. And you think about them as sort of revenue multiples and um, sort of revenue to growth multiples. And depending on where they are on their earnings trajectory as well, you know, earnings multiples or balance sheet kind of equations, maybe less so. Um, you, um, you sort of figure out, well, how should this company be valued? Um, we, we do think that the valuation of, of Sendal, um, given where it is in its life cycle, should pertain something to its to its revenue trajectory and its revenue size. Um, so um, that's the basis that we that we chose to to to, to price it initially. Uh, and then since we've invested, um, we we almost had this this dilemma of not wanting to mark it up too much because it's better to be conservative and under promise and. Um, and over deliver when you're when you're a guy like us and and we saw that those comparable multiples that we were comparing Sendal against when we when we when we entered the investment they all they all took off and we resisted the um we we resisted the um the desire to mark up Sendal for anything other than its operating performance so we can't hide its growth the thing grows really quickly um, but we've kept the multiple of that growth the same um, ever since. And that's been good because, I don't know, like if things went up and then if maybe they came down a bit during COVID, which, by the way, they didn't in, in this instance, um, we, we still feel like there's this sort of valuation buffer. So um, when it is that we think about valuing our, um, our underlying assets, I should make a side note. There is no incentive for this fund manager to just say this thing's growing incredibly quickly uh, because we don't get paid more nor less for um, future performance. We get paid on a management fee of money that goes into the tin initially from our investors. We'll get paid a performance fee when things are exited. So when investors get paid, we get, we, we get paid, not in the interim as we're sort of telling people how these things are tracking and the, the, the book's going well at Federation. I think we're up 24% internal rate of return since inception. So that's pretty good, um, certainly through COVID. So it's been strong performance, but it's just almost an investor guide that we're telling people how those things are going. And uh, the proof will be in the pudding when it is we sell these assets um, and we realize some return, then we can show how it was. And hopefully in the instance of Sendal, it will be worth more than where we've currently got it marked. The plenties may, may be an example as well of where at least it didn't list that well. It fell when it IPO'd, but your purchase price and your valuation would have been lower than even the, the fall in value that occurred when it listed as well, um, which is kind of that difference between private market and, and public market valuations. Yeah, that's right. So there's a, a, a good example and let's see what happens with, with plenty over the coming period. Um, we continue to hold um, our shares in plenty um, and we'll see um, how, how, how the business goes. Plenty is, um, you know, targeting a, a, a very large total addressable market. We think that they've got some very strong credit skills and some credit protections in their business model. Um, and on a relative basis, we think it's priced um, very conservatively relative to, to others in its sector. Um, so we'll be interested to see what happens with plenty as say the market settles down and there's a few others to list as well aren't there not, it, not the same but similar similar it, sector 
Exactly. And, you know, when people get into these things and look for stag profits out of IPOs and things, when the register settles down and, and, and attention comes back to the fundamental business model and the fundamental growth trajectory of that business, um, we'd be expecting to see that thing perform okay. And I think um, if Jamie doesn't mind, I call, we the fees on private equity are always higher. They're kind of well known. You're not two and 20. Uh, traditionally, be 2% and 20% of outperformance. Um, be interesting. We kind of understand that investing into private companies, you have to do more of the research yourself. Whereas if you're buying listed stocks, there's about 50 brokers doing research on everything. Is that where the higher fees come from uh, in the due diligence process? Probably the cost of, um, yeah, it's probably the, the philosophy, I guess, of, of a fee structure for a private equity firm. So firstly, our management fee is 1.6%. Yep. Um, so we think about that as a 20% discount to um, what a typical private equity firm would charge. And I guess we're doing that because we're new and we're trying to you know, beautify ourselves to new investors. Um, the um, the um, the rationale for why that might be bigger than say I don't know 1.2 percent or something that 1.3 percent that Magellan charges on say you know their, their listed lick um, would be that you know the incremental costs of doing the private analysis and the legals and rather than just I guess looking from publicly available information we're generally getting in there and getting under the hood of these companies and probably cost a bit more yeah much more uh, much more exertion and and drafting actual documents so so i think that for for listeners it's really important that your fund uh, and, and a lot of private market funds are illiquid so therefore uh you're people are available to invest that it seems to be pretty much every quarter there's a unit price that you go into but essentially you can't sell that investment and that's why you're talking about alignment and performance fees so that investment essentially it'll be somewhere around a three-year lock Cameron and the investor public market investors um, so, so, you know, it's something that investors need to get their minds around uh, a, a lot of financial planning clients and, and private investors don't like locking up their money. They haven't really experienced that before. And, you know, we, we talk about the illiquidity premium you get for locking up your money for investing into private markets versus public markets. Um, and I think that that just needs to be made really clear to the listeners that when you invest in Federation, it's typically a three year lock up before the money comes out. What you get in exchange for that is access to different assets you couldn't get access to on the public market. And essentially, we think there's more returns available that outweigh the benefits of having your money available every second uh, day. So, you know, it kind of all works. Um, then Cameron is aligned to your interest because his performance fees paid at the end. Um, have I got that right, Cameron? Uh, there is seems the to way be the a, product works. Seems to be a slight lag on 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 your side there on the Wi-Fi, Jamie. Yeah, but um, if you how I talk, Cameron, <laughs> you must have a lovely singing voice. Um, <laughs> and <laughs> I'm going to drop out. Drew, do you want to host? Yeah, that's fine. I think, yeah, Jamie was just talking about uh, being rewarded for the the illiquidity, um, which is kind of the purpose of the strategy. I know you do have a, a liquidity option, but really you're locking in for three to five years at least. Uh, would you agree with that? 
Certainly. Um, so firstly, on this topic of liquidity, when we were coming out the box, um, setting Federation up, a lot of people were um, that were around us were saying, well, don't you realize that you should you will raise more money if you do a listed investment company or a listed investment trust. And we we thought about it, but then realized that the underlying investments that we're making are themselves illiquid. And we couldn't, we couldn't consciously say that the listed investment company is the most appropriate vehicle for a business that holds underlying illiquid investments. We would fear that it itself would trade at an illiquidity discount. We'd be asking our investors for a dollar to put in this 10. And then the next day, the stock market would say that dollar is worth 80 cents. And that didn't seem fair. So we decided to go the slower private route of an unlisted trust, which is which is what we've been doing. We're pleased with this decision, I guess, on the ethics of it. Um, the um, having said that, um, there is situations in people's life that changes a divorce, a death in the family, someone loses a job for reasons unrelated to Federation's performance, someone might need their money back. And we've thought to provide a um, a feature to our investors in an unlisted trust land of allowing for daily liquidity. So if you want to sell your units, you can. It needs to have a buyer of them. And so we've set up a marketplace to facilitate this buying and selling of, of units in Federation. Um, and we've constrained the price to get away from this illiquidity discount problem or the prisoner's dilemma that you need to sell your units before the dentist next to you sells them. So therefore put your price down by one cent um, and so on and so forth. Mm. Um, and, and, and so we've constrained price at this, this latest quarterly NAV. And we figured that that would be a good feature. So if people wanted to get out, that's okay. We, we understand you can, you can sell. Um, it does need a buyer. Uh, it's the same on the stock market. You can't sell BHP unless someone will buy it from you. Um, and so this marketplace that we don't facilitate, a third party facilitates, we don't make any money out of it. In fact, it costs us some administration costs to, to be running this as an investor service. We have, however, found that hardly anyone wants to sell our units yet. I think there's been two transactions and in aggregate less than 100 grand um, historically. So, um, We've, we have this theoretical capability, but I think that you're right, Jamie. It, we should be thought of as uh, as an illiquid trust. You can sell, but you know, in practical reality, it doesn't seem to. People don't seem to want to. The um, the form then of the team has been to hold things for a few years. Yes, you're right. So we've been operating since 2011. We've deployed 2.3 billion dollars into situations that have exited since then. And we've achieved good money on that. We've achieved a 23% IRR in aggregate across all of that um, invested capital. And the wow. form on private equity um, exits has tended to be about a three-year journey. So, yep, we'd be expecting if we put money into a deal today in three years' time, we'd be expecting all other things being equal to sell out. And we'd be giving people's money back then and stopping the clock on returns. And you know, hopefully, if we've performed, getting our performance fee and, and so on and so forth. So, yes, we are aligned um, in that regard. This um, question from... Fiona, the answer to your question is you should be thinking about investing more for capital gains. Yeah, um, yeah, definitely. Ha ha having said that, because we have a real estate, um, you know, feather to our bow 
um, we can also um, provide a yield. And so the product that we're telling investors um, that we're selling is a 15% net return to investor over the life of the trust. So 15% per annum and an average dividend yield of 3% per annum to answer That's your question. Because you, ha you have to pay out uh, realized profit or, or, or income that comes through because yep. of the structure of the trust like all other funds. Tax efficient, that's right. Yep, perfect. I think that wraps up our hour. Uh, Jamie's still with us, sort of, with his NBN connection. Oh, I think so. I think so. Still working. NBN's been out the front for the last uh, week, digging up all the lines. So it's been fun working from home. But thanks, Cameron. Uh, always a delight to talk to you. Always learn something every time we're on one of these calls and really appreciate you uh, being innovative in terms of product design and providing these opportunities to, to clients like ours and direct investors. So Appreciate your time. Uh, thanks, Drew. Thanks, Cameron. Thanks. And we've got uh, Franklin Templeton and next week talking about Australian corporate bonds. Thank you very much for having me. And um, of course, go. if there's follow-up questions, please let me know. Thanks, Cameron. Thanks, mate. Cheers.